Welcome to another edition of the eSpot with Camille. The eSpot is your location for the latest in entertainment, beauty, and design from the people who make it. Thanks for joining. Hi, welcome to another edition of Filmmaker Friday. And today I cannot wait for you to meet my guest today. He is Stephen Ashley Blake. He is a director of photography, but he's he's doing way more than that. And I want you to meet him, to hear about his journey, to hear about his career, and also to get inspired and maybe even audition for your chance in Hollywood. So welcome, Stephen Blake. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I am super excited about having you on because your career has gone, I mean, just keeps going up, but like the waves are all over the place. Like you've done music videos, film, TV. I mean, people wish to have so much crossover success you've had. So tell everyone, how did you get started? And what was it inside of you that was like, I can do this? Because I mean, Hollywood is not an easy place to start off. Right. Well, first of all, it's great to be here, Camille. So thanks for inviting me uh, this morning. When I was nine years old, an uncle gave me a Super 8 movie camera. And that began a hobby, actually, of uh, learning film. And then began um, um, I began directing film with my neighbors and sisters as uh, cast members, did a lot of animation, enrolled in an animation class, a community animation class uh, in the inner city in Pasadena. Uh, when I was in high school, I began mentor. I, uh, I was mentored by a great animator called John Clark Matthews and another filmmaker called William Moffat. Uh, and I entered the business professionally at about 15 and a half. I was attending Pasadena High School, and they gave me permission to leave high school at lunchtime to drive from Pasadena down to Hollywood to work on the KTLA lot, Channel Five here in Los Angeles. And I got to work for some amazing producers. Um, and uh, at uh, 20, I uh, directed for a show called Hollywood Close-Up, uh, and that was at uh, KABC Television here in town. And really, at that point, I was discovering who and what I wanted to be in the industry. There was no question that I was going to be in the industry. My mom, I was raised by a single mom, begged me to go to college. And I'm like, Mom, I'm already like deeply immersed in the, in the business. Uh, and so I was sort of uh, finding my way and uh, I worked very hard. My ethic was whatever I do, I don't care whether I'm scrubbing toilets. In fact, my offer to do that's what got me my first professional job ever. I said, I will do anything you need me to do, scrubbing toilets, whatever, for free. Just get me on the set. And I literally walked up and down Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard to production companies, making them the offer they couldn't refuse, which resulted in my first job. And I worked so hard that my name spread, fortunately. So this time in my late teens and early 20s was a time of really discovering what I wanted to do exactly. I love it to working uh, for KBC television. Uh, and then I uh, worked with a great cinematographer called Jordan Cronenweth. Jordan mm -hmm. Cronenweth is one of the legendary DPs, uh, directors of photography. Uh, he shot Blade Runner, Altered States. Um, it's just one of the greats. Blade Runner is one of the most amazingly photographed films of all time. And he was very kind to me. Uh, and as a result of working with Jordan, I was a production assistant on that shoot, I began uh, pursuing jobs as a cinematographer. And at that time, there was a publication that would publish um, all kinds of ads for uh, production companies that needed cinematographers, freebies, and also student, uh, students that were looking for cinematographers for their films. So it was easy for me to land a lot of work as a cinematographer, even though um, I had had no experience in that before. 
And I worked hard um, and I, I, I got really seriously mentored and uh, the results were quite liked. And so then I, I began working as a director of photography, began doing a lot of genre films early on. There were low budget films, action films, war films, horror films, films like uh, Battleground and Deadly Prey, and Jungle Assault and Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolorama and lots of others. Uh, and what was great about those films is they had no budgets whatsoever, but they would take a small amount of money, $100,000, and they would part, these brilliant producers would parlay those into like massive productions with special effects and helicopters and, and props and ammo and pyrotechnics and everything brilliantly produced. None of those films were films to write home about, uh, except that they've virtually all gotten cult followings since. Meanwhile, I was uh, meeting people like Robert Townsend and Carl Craig, the late Carl Craig, uh, and uh, started working on things like Hollywood Shuffle, et cetera. Uh, okay, and wait, wait, wait. You can't just you can't just drop Hollywood Shuffle without going into it more detail because that is a, a true cult classic. But I also want to mention working on all those films was like going to college in that way because you actually got on the job training and you made all those networking, which is a lot of things that I think is the big part of college is making that community that can help you get those jobs and future oper future opportunities. So, but. Talk a little bit about um, working on Hollywood Shuffle because I was kind of a late bloomer. I only saw it maybe in the last four years, I think, right. and was just like blown away. I couldn't believe I hadn't seen it earlier, but also just how much it spoke about the black experience in Hollywood. So tell a little bit about how that came about. A little bit more, please. Sure, absolutely. And, and by the way, um, a very important point. You're right. Um, these these low-budget productions are, I think, the best film school ever. And you can make lots of mistakes. I've always been experimental. And you should be too, no matter who you are, aspiring to be in the business. You should not enslave yourself to what has already been, but seek to find yourself. And you need to be free to make mistakes. And I've made many mistakes. And these, these kinds of films are the perfect opportunities then to sort of cut your teeth. Yeah, so um, somewhere in my works, the producer, Carl, I was working quite a bit. I was shooting a lot of films. Uh, and the producer, Carl Craig, uh, approached me and said, we're doing a film called The Hollywood Shuffle. They had already been in production. There were three cinematographers on that, a guy named Robert Cray, a guy named Peter Deming. And they had, and what they were doing was Robert was putting these uh, these expenses on his credit cards, which I would, a model I would later follow. And, uh, and, and they'd been shooting in waves and running out of money, getting more credit card balance available and then shooting a little bit more, et cetera. Uh, and they started out shooting in 16 millimeter, which is sort of a, um, a, a smaller sort of uh, smaller format. And but now they had moved to 35 millimeter, which is the standard for motion pictures. And they asked me if I would um, if I would uh, shoot um, a bunch of scenes for Hollywood Shuffle. They got just enough credit to to do that. And the pay was almost nothing. I, it was it was probably maybe less than minimum wage in California when you added up the hours. The minimum wage at that time was something like three dollars and fifty cents an hour. So uh, it was it was like that. But I was happy to do it, so we, we shot a number of things. We went down to Pico Boulevard and shot a scene in a barbershop where Robert uh, and his uncle, great actor, David McKnight, are talking about, you know, Robert's at the brink of giving up his dreams. Uh, and his uncle tells uh, Robert that, uh, that he gave up his dreams and he regrets having done that. We shot that scene, very moody scene. Uh, a lot, and, and the experimentation with lighting was there. You notice in the scene, if you see it, that David McKnight flicks off lights and the scene gets sort of progressively darker and darker until just the neon light of a clock is there. That clock vexed us. It, uh, it made so much humming sound that they had to go and re-record all the audio for that scene later. Um, Rambro uh, and various other scenes. In fact, a, a little amusing story. 
Robert, you know, there was no money. So we shot various scenes out of Robert's uh, apartment. And um, <laughs> we, we kept, we kept uh, breaking the circuits for the building because we were using so many lights in the building that his landlord complained. And there's a story that, you know, that he may have been asked to move as the result of, of th that. I'm not sure whether that's true, but, but that was wonderful. Um, and it was great to see uh, the audience's response there. Robert and Carl obviously took a very tongue in cheek, both a tongue in cheek and a serious approach to really looking at the lack of equality that was even much more prominent then in the industry uh, and I think created a hilarious piece. And if, if, if what's great about that film too is they there are so many different genres within the one film. There's a horror movie spoof. Uh, there's actually real contemporary drama and many other things. Beautifully produced film. I mean, I had always heard about it and the fact that you even mentioned it as well about him putting it all on his credit cards and so on. And just that became like almost like a joke in a way, like just put it on a credit card, <laughs> make it happen. If no one believes in your dream, do it yourself like Robert Townsend. And so um, when you moved on from that and you keep growing your career, like at what point were you just like, I can't believe this is my life or um, even having the, maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome with it. Did you ever go through those moments and how did you like overcome it? So what's interesting for me is because of the way my mom raised me, I had the most amazing mom that has ever lived. It's interesting. I never had a sense that there was anything I couldn't do. I just never had that sense. It was never part of my mindset. And I, I believed and believe that anything that I put my mind to and then my work to, um, I could achieve. And so I, I never had, I, I, there was never a time where I was like, wow, I'm kind of in dreamland. Uh, I, I was born and raised in the Los Angeles area, first of all. So mm -hmm. Hollywood has always been part of my immediate life and experience. But um, I know that if you work hard, it pays off. And I work very hard. Never expect a handout in terms of uh, professional opportunity. So no, I never had the uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, I... I've been very blessed to have been mentored by great people, people that took a vested interest in me, including some of the most unlikely people. But I also know that I hustle. Um, I work very hard. When I would edit music videos, which is another chapter that perhaps we'll talk about, um, to deliver the very, very best um, work frame by frame by frame by frame by frame, I would, rather than drive home at the end of an eight-hour editing day, which most do, I would literally camp out and sleep in the editing room for a week at a time so that I could work all but like five hours when I crash on the couch so that I could really, really, really deliver everything in a very, very meticulous way, the way it needs to be. And I know that that pays off. So no, I never had the sense that, um, that wow, this is kind of happening to me. It's kind of cause and effect uh, for me. I, perhaps I should have had a bit more um, humility perhaps, but, um, and, and also it's been my joy to- Working for you, why change now? <laughs> right, exactly, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned your music career uh, with working on music videos. Share a little bit about that. How did that transition happen? And because I looked at your credits, like you've worked with everyone from Tupac to um, Kathy Lee Griffin. Like it's like it's just it doesn't even it boggles the mind how you were able to work in such different worlds and even Linda Perry, like so many greats. Like tell me a little bit about your experience with that, even LL Cool J, because I mean. I don't know if you noticed, but Twitter has been going crazy over LL Cool J's music videos and how he was wild and, and just doing all these random things, which at the time didn't seem that crazy. But now looking at it from 2022's eyes, you're like, well, that's what music videos were fun back then. It wasn't meant to be taken so seriously. And it wasn't, I don't know, there was some of that East West Coast stuff that was going on as well. But at that time, there wasn't. It, it, they were entertainers. 
Yeah. Now I haven't read the recent press, so I don't really know what that's about, but there, there is yeah. an anic- uh, anecdote about mom said, knock you out. Well, I've been doing motion pictures exclusively, only feature films. Uh, and that, that had been my only interest. Um, and then one day a buddy of mine named Ron DeVoe, Ron is a great cameraman and he shot a lot of the stuff for like Ebony Jet Showcase magazine. He also did a lot of White House coverage. He's a cameraman. And um, he called me and said, hey, listen, we helped me out in this video. We're doing um, an EPK, an electronic press kit for, for Johnny Gill. And, I, and, and Ron asked me if I would just come down and, and light, this, um, light this interview for him. And I said, sure. So I came down to West Hollywood and we shot this uh, press kit with, with Johnny Gill. And as I went to the lobby to check my answering machine, which is what you did, you went to a payphone back in those days to check your machine, a woman uh, races up to the payphone next to me, gets on the phone, and I hear her uh, rapidly canceling a shoot. She's calling all these crew members to say, don't show up, don't show up, the shoot's been postponed, the shoot's been postponed. Anyway, we, we just casually chatted afterward. Her name was Sabrina Gray, and she uh, was a music video producer for a company called Classic Concepts in New York, which Lionel Martin and Ralph McDaniels uh, ran. And um, so we just got to talking, and she asked what I did. I said, um, I'm a cinematographer. And she goes, oh, well, our, our director, Lionel Martin, so she did exclusively music videos. And she said, our director, Lionel Martin, really wants more of a, of a, of a feature film look for the music videos. And I said, oh, okay. Um, and, and they were, as it turns out, she was canceling a shoot for Belle Biv DeVoe called Do Me. And for some reason, they had to reschedule things. And she goes, yeah, our previous video, which was called Poison, it was a very, you know, very, very brightly lit, sort of front lit, uh, almost like kind of a sitcom 70s style-esque kind of a feel. And she said, you know, we really want a theatrical film. So she asked for my card. I said, great. Gave her the card. Didn't think anything of it. Went back. Well, sure enough, she actually called me a while later and said, yeah, we're shooting uh, this video. Do me. We're shooting it in Los Angeles. And um, can you shoot this? And I said, uh, I said, sure. So they came out, they, they had flown back to New York, which is where they're based, and they flew back out to Los Angeles, and uh, we prepped and we shot the music of Belle Biv DeVoe, an interesting, uh, do me for Belle Biv DeVoe. An interesting thing, in this video, I did a lot of things like, uh, I had the artist performing in, uh, in front of uh, uh, cars with the headlight beam shining right in the camera and would filter those headlight beams, so there was a lot of backlight with the faces underexposed, and did a lot of stuff with underexposure and, and rim lights and things like that. Very, very sort of dramatic feature film material. Anyway, we shoot the video. And by the way, uh, I still recall there was a whole new culture to me, the hip hop culture and, and R&B, whole new culture. I still remember driving in the production van with the, with the whole team and they're using expressions like, man, that was dope. And I'm like, what does that mean? I just had <laughs> a whole new vocabulary that opened up to me. Anyway, uh, they go back to New York and I go on with my life and I get a call from the production company basically saying, your work sucked. Uh, and in fact, the actual words were, I'll give you a D for your work. And I heard that from, from one of the production personnel. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, it's just way too dark. We can't see anything. And I'm like, and, and, so they, and I thought back and I thought, no, this should look exact. I know how it should look, that shouldn't be. But basically they were like, nope. Um, uh, sorry, it just looked horrible. I said, okay, great, you know, and so we hung up the phone. And then they called me back about two weeks later. They said, we're doing two videos back to back, Run DMC, Brother's Gonna Work It Out, and uh, Cool G Rap and DJ Polo, The Streets of New York. Will you fly out to New York and shoot it? Which was really strange to me because I'd just been condemned for my work. So I fly to New York, I say yes, I fly to New York, checked into the Empire Hotel, never knew that there were hotel rooms so small as they had in New York. Um, and uh, the first thing I wanted to do was to see this footage from Doomy, which was they were st- they had edited, but it hadn't been released yet. 
And it looked exactly the way it was supposed to look. And as it turns out, they just weren't used to things being sort of that dramatic. But but the label loved it. So get onto the production on the set of Brothers Gonna Work It Out and Cooled You Up and DJ Polo. Uh, and each of these videos, so Do Me goes to the top of the charts. Each of these two videos goes to the top of the charts. Then I get a call, and so I'm back in LA now, so there are three videos that have all gone to the top of the charts. And I get a call from Malcolm Jamal Warner's rep. And she said, her name was Sherry Simpson, uh, and she said that Malcolm saw Streets of New York and liked one of the effects you had where the artist is performing with a light bulb and just liked that visual. Will you meet him at CPK and talk about his next video that he's going to do called Barsha, for, for an artist called Barsha, who's the master? So I said, okay. I met Malcolm at uh, CPK in, in Los Angeles at the Beverly Center. I'd never been to a CPK before. And we agreed to work together. Fly to New York, go to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, shoot um, this video, uh, Who's the Master? And that goes then to the top of the charts. Well, that that music video, Malcolm's company that he was rep by, was a company called Black and White Television run by Paris Barclay and Richie Vetter. They were doing another video called Mama Said Knock You Out. And they said, yeah, we saw the, the, the black and white video because the video I'd, I'd done for Malcolm Barsha, um, who's the master, was in black and white and used a lot of foreground, a lot of smoke and dust. And they said, will you shoot this video for us um, from Mama Said Knock You Out? You know, we like kind of a raging bull look to it. Uh, I said, I said, great. Um, so I fly back to New York uh, and we went to a soundstage called Mothers, which later mysteriously burned the ground and what some rumored to uh, be a, um, uh, an, an insurance uh, matter. But uh, we went to the second floor and we were shooting two videos back to back. We were shooting Around the Way Girl on Saturday and uh, Mama Said Knock You Out on Sunday, same stage. Wow. Except that for Mama Said Knock You uh, for Around the Way Girl, we also gave LL a camera and invited him to just kind of walk around the streets of the city and, and you know, have interactions with, with, with different ladies. So. Great, we shot uh, uh, Around the Way Girl on Saturday. Um, and I'll just say that um, LL was about four hours late the next day to set for Mama Said Knock You Out. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Um, so you're saying he had a lot of fun getting footage. <laughs> he had a great time on Saturday uh, shooting these interactions and having these interactions. Um, and so su Sunday we're shooting Mama Said Knock You Out, one day shoot. And because uh, LL was, was four hours late, that compressed our shooting day. We only had a limited amount of time to shoot everything. And there were fiascos with equipment that would break down because New York was not the best place to film as far as gear goes. And that was Mama Said Knock You Out. And of course, when we heard when we heard it, because when you shoot a music video, you're playing it you know, over and over and over again. You're playing it dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times, depending on the amount of coverage you're getting. We all knew this was going to be um, a great success. And indeed it was. No, both of those songs were. I remember being... I'll just say a baby at the time and watching Yo MTV raps. And like, that was my way to memorize dances was watching different things. And uh, my father actually worked on the film. Who's the man. And so I got to meet some of the MTV people, some of the people that you mentioned and just yeah. being like, oh, like, bigger than life but that was you know with fubu and carl Kanai, like all of that style and the bamboo earrings all of that and i went to like a small private school <laughs> so i was trying to fake the funk so to speak and so i'm um, yo mtv raps and music videos were my way into through my culture in a way you know because i was kind of isolated from it because um my dad works in the movie business as well and like we would move around to all these random places like ramsey new jersey malwa um 
Salt Lake City, like different places where maybe there was a lot of black people, but I was kind of isolated from right, them. So right, I, right. Had to be, I had to represent for the race and they all expected me to be, you know, down for the cause. And like you were mentioning, um, knowing all the different slang, like I didn't know, like I, I didn't know all that stuff. So I was like, Yo, MTV Raps was my way in. And of course, right. LJ Public Enemy, they were definitely some of my favorites. But I want to know, like, from a, from your perspective, like, how do you even come up with these concepts when music video, like, what is, what is the stuff that we don't see on camera? How does that go about? Because I've only worked on a few music videos and a lot of times it was like tied to a movie. So it made sense what we were doing. But in your sense, like from your perspective, how does that go about? And then we'll start talking about your new project. Cause I'm sure it's kind of, it correlates with the behind the scenes of it all. So share yeah. that side of it. Sure. Um, so the, the way you, you book a music video job or the way you get a music video job is either a record label comes to you and they, and they say, we want you to direct this music video for this artist, which happened with me, with Tupac, for example, and, and many other artists as well. Or uh, the record label solicits bids from different directors because they like different directors who work, they're not sure who they want to go with. And, and the bid really is write a concept, write the treatment. Mm. Um, and so you, 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 they give you a, a recording of the piece or you download the recording of the piece, you listen to it, listen to it, and then you work out the treatment. It's like writing a script, if you will. Uh, and then the record label takes uh, that into account. They compare the different uh, submissions they've gotten and they decide who's going to shoot the project. For me, my process was there's a great coffee shop in Los Angeles called the Bourgeois Pig. That's on a street called Franklin. Uh, it's in the eastern part of Hollywood. And I would just go there, uh, darkened room, and I would just write out my my treatments. And I still have many, many, many of the treatments uh, on my computer for the projects that I created. Um, and then they, um, if you're booked for the job, you go about the process of, of prepping the job. You, of course, want to interact with the artists. And you you always want to, from the very beginning, you want to understand where the artist's head is, um, where their mindsets are with respect to this song. For example, Tupac for Holler If You Hear Me. Tupac was very clear. I met him in a record. We'd already done two videos before, but I met him in a recording studio in Los Feliz here in Los Angeles. And, and he was very clear that he wanted um, a, a really, really, really hardcore uh, sort of straight no chaser video. So you take that in and, you know, and, and depending on the artist and what they want, sometimes the record label will say, no, no, don't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't do what the artist just said. In fact, th there's a video of Tupac being very disappointed with, Holler If You Hear Me, which is the video that um, uh, I produced three music videos for Tupac and directed Holler If You Hear Me. Uh, we shot it at my grandmother's house. I cast family and it called in tons of favors because the budget was so small, but we wanted it to be very elaborate. And the record label actually uh, made me remove uh, two things from the music video that really, really disappointed Tupac. So all this to say you're navigating what the artist wants, what the label wants, but at the same time, you also understand that that neither of them is a filmmaker. And you also want to look and to see what you can put on screen that's going to be unseen, that's going to break new ground, et cetera. So you're navigating these things creatively. Then you design the shoot. Okay, what kind of shoot is going to be? I One of the, uh, the um, music videos that I'm very happy with is a, a video called Shadowboxing Fourth Chamber by Jizza. Um, and um, technically, I was the creative consultant on that, plus the cinematographer, plus the editor on the project. Um, and on this project, uh, there there was talk about creating a smaller uh, shoot for this, a smaller intimate shoot. And I'm like, no, no, this got to be big. We have to be out in the forest. We have to make all these things happen. We have to create a war. We want to have these 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 flag teams, etc. So you have to. 
um, then decide what kind of a production it's going to be. And you have to make decisions. You know, if you want to get if everyone's going to get paid, for example, based on the budget standard rates, then you're going to you're going to be kind of limited with respect to what you can afford to show for rap videos, especially because those, those budgets are small. But you might say, you know what, let's actually slash our salaries and put more on screen, which is what we did for that. Um, and, uh, and, and then you and then you shoot it, of course. Um, most music video productions are a day. Some go to two days. Uh, for a video like that, we pressed and pressed and pressed and shot for three days. And at the end of the day, what you want to make is something that really, really um, represents the artist well, represents the label well, but that really, really captivates the, um, the viewer. And it's all about that. Um, and, you know, to tie into an early question that you asked, Camille, um, why... What you want is legacy, uh, whether you're a cinematographer on a project, whether you work, work in production totally behind the scenes where the work of your hands won't even be seen by anyone on screen. You want legacy and you want to give a thousand percent. And, you know, I think you want to go through life giving a thousand percent. And, and that that's part of it. And I tried to bring that to each of the music videos that I created. But those are the behind the scenes. And then when you get into editing, you, for example, for, for uh, Shadowboxing Fourth Chamber, for Tupac and for other projects as well, you, you cut the video, you send it to the record label, and uh, they sometimes want changes. Sometimes they're hugely irrational changes. I won't name this one client, but very famous artist, very famous record label, very famous client. And she literally asked me to edit out a whole series of performances from a video because the artist was wearing red and she personally didn't like red. So that's how silly things can get. I refuse to do that. I'm like, I'm going to go to my grave before I do that. On the other hand, you have people like Wendy Goldstein, who, when I delivered them the cut of Shadowboxing Fourth Chamber, made a flurry of amazing suggestions that I could then take back into the editing room and really finesse and hone. So, um, and then at the end of the day, you deliver the edit and the world uh, sees it a short time later. Now, I have to go back a little bit because just going from somebody giving you a D to even getting all these different feedbacks, how do you not take it personally? Like, because a lot of artists, they're very sensitive about their S word <laughs> to quote, <laughs> to quote Erica Badu. So for you, how did you handle that? And also pivoted in a way where you knew that it didn't matter. It was just a job. Like you had to keep doing, I guess, what the clients want in that sense, because they're the ones that write the check. But at the same time, like, how did you know to keep putting it up? Because um my dad is was really close friends with John Singleton and he would have his rejection letters framed on his wall in his in his office and I just remember thinking like I wouldn't want that energy that reminder but at the same time it fueled him it made him think let me show you what no means you know and different things of that nature no no for you was yes for the right person so how did that how did you navigate through that sure sure by the way i shot a music video for john singleton for his uh movie higher learning and i used to see him at the new beverly cinema uh down here on beverly boulevard in la um really inspirational uh man um i don't take it personally because to me it's not personal whatsoever at the end of the day you have an artist and when they see the video that you're showing them or when a record label client sees uh something that you're showing them or if you're a casting director casting a motion picture and you're looking at um acting candidates what you want what she wants what he wants is what's right for your project. You know, just like I have something to deliver and I have to be sort of true to myself creatively, uh, so does this person have to be true to their position? So these, these actually, as you as you say that, there are, I'll, I'll mention two kinds of rejections actually. So, um, so the kind of rejection where someone's like, no, you're not right for this, or we don't quite like what you did, or we definitely don't like what you did. Uh, Fab Five Freddy was very disappointed for uh, by a video I shot called Erase Racism because we agreed to go with an old school film look, like an old uh, film news film footage look, 
Uh, and the record label hated that. Uh, so that was, yeah. but those aren't personal at all. It's just the way it works. I mean, you and I make decisions. We walk into Ikea, we decide we want that and we don't want those. That's not personal. We're not dissing the designer. Now there was another kind of rejection that is offensive to me. And in fact, at Realm Pictures, which is what our company that we're producing Steal Away out of, it's, it's an outrage. There's another kind of rejection in which production companies, even black production companies will send you a letter saying, I'm sorry, we don't accept unsolicited um, submissions. And this cuts to the heart of the, of the great um, inequality and the reason that we as African-Americans are often enemies of us as African-Americans in our advancement in the industry. I'll give you an example of that. So there's a very, very famous uh, black producer with a very, very famous production company. Uh, and, um, and this is just one of many. And their policy is this production company Although they speak about, you know, blacks advancing in the business, full equality, leveling the playing field. OK, great. You know, uh, they will not read a page of a script unless it comes through one of the four major Hollywood agencies. Basically, this black company has appointed these four agencies to be the gatekeepers of what they will read. The problem is those four major agencies that you've basically appointed to be Massa here, guardian of your plantation, they will not read a page of your script either. So you can be a young sister coming out of Howard. You could be a young brother coming out of Fisk with the writing gift of Shakespeare. No one's going to read a page of your script. Of all companies, this black production company, notoriously for equality, they should say, we need to level this playing field. We want to get this African-American talent. We will read your screenplay. We're going to disrupt that oppressive system. But many of these black production companies, I'm talking about some of the most major are slaves to that very system and have appointed Massa to oversee that. So that's an offensive kind of rejection. Now still, it's not personal, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but the thing is it's utterly impersonal. They don't care to read a page of what you've got. And this is what we're looking to disrupt in a big way. But at the end of the day, it's not about Stephen Blake. They're not hating on Stephen Blake. And, and if you were to look at my work and say that it's not right for this project, I'm not going to hate on you. You can only hire one cinematographer. So all the others, um, you know, all but one have to be uh, turned down. And that's just the way that is. So nothing personal there. But it, it is empowering. And by the way, I didn't know that about John. But um, one of the things that I have all the rejections I've gotten from every studio, every uh, streamer, uh, these, ma these major black production companies, and I have actually thought about uh, collaging those into the company's screen credit, into the company's logo on the screen credits for Steal Away. So that's how we can find out who that producer is. Just kidding. Um, so, I but to go through with that. I might, I might, I might get a little weak at the knees, but I have to think that through. <laughs> I don't want to get you sued, but hey, sometimes people need to know, you know, because it's it's upsetting because maybe we're supporting a company that wouldn't support us back, and that's unfortunate because you don't expect that from black-owned companies, but sometimes we do the worst to each other in that same sense. So let's get into Steal Away, Realm Pictures, all of what you're doing now, because you're doing the complete opposite. Not only are you putting your money where your mouth is as far as um, you're going to support HBCUs with this project as well to help make that pipeline of more creators being able to get that opportunity to work in Hollywood or to work anywhere in that sense because they'll have help with college. But your film, you're you're going about it a very different way as far as you don't have to have an agent 
to submit for an actor or to even work behind the screens for that matter too. You're looking to really do what they used to do was bring in new talent and make superstars, whether behind the scenes or in front of the scenes. So share more about that so people can take that chance and figure out how they can get involved with Steal Away as well. Absolutely, Camille. So at Rum Pictures, uh, we are, first of all, um, we're making, as a production company, making, and this brings together many of the elements I've talked about and a few I haven't, we are making spectacularly diverse blockbuster entertainment. Now, a lot of independent film companies uh, make amazing films, which are smaller niche films, and they're not really broadly seen by the world. They may win some awards, they may, you know, um, they may garner uh, a lot of buzz for a short period of time, deservedly. Um, but usually independent filmmakers are not shooting for a, a global sweep, uh, whereas the studios are. We're looking to make studio motion pictures. And I mentioned that how brilliantly these independent films were produced, brilliantly produced. Roger Corman did this. He was a legend at doing this as well. So we're making studio films, Paramount, Sony, Disney films on an indie cost basis, first of all, which then raises the ROIs, the returns on investment for our investors. But this uh, entertainment is spectacularly diverse. I love what Bridgerton has done for Netflix. I love what Hamilton's done for the stage. We want this to become the mainstay. We want this in mainstream motion pictures. They, those, each of those broke new ground, so we're doing that. We're committed also to breaking brilliant, undiscovered talent, and that's a cornerstone of what we're doing. It touches on what you said. There is a great uh, lack of equity in this business. Now, someone might say, no, that's ridiculous. There's a lot of diversity. Just turn on your television, go to the movies. You see a lot of faces of color. Let me ask you a question. The same faces of color. <laughs> First of all, same faces of color. And in the motion picture businesses, 100 plus years and its storied legacy of epic movies. When has a black woman ever led an epic movie ever? Let's see, Braveheart, uh, Dances with Wolves, Lord of the Rings trilogy, Twilight, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, Ben-Hur going back, Gone with the Wind. Has a black now black women have had powerful roles, no question, but I'm talking about that top tier of entertainment, the ones that carry box offices and then around the world, and then can elevate more African Americans into that place of recognition of their capability of carrying these box offices. Never once in the industry's hundred plus years has there ever been a black woman has I'm sorry, I'm just beside myself with this passion and a thousand mm -hmm. emotions, led an epic film. It's never happened. We're looking to shatter that. Steal Away shatters that. It is the incredible true story of the Fist Jubilee Singers. Um, they were, and by the way, they, they, they still exist, this sensational choir of young former slaves fighting the KKK's reign of terror against their schools following the Civil War, among them the fledgling HBCUs. But this incredible choir fights back, not with bullets or bombs, but with these electrifying songs of faith and freedom. And Steal Away follows their incredible journey from the darkness of slavery to the glittering ballrooms and throne rooms of Europe as they take the world by storm, true story, uh, and then they have to kind of uh, conquer their own demons. Um, this amazing story, um, which is captured in an amazing book, Andrew Ward's Dark Midnight When I Rise, um, in a PBS special called Sacrifice and Glory, features uh, what Jesse Jackson, we have the Reverend Jesse Jackson's endorsement, he calls the lead character Ella Shepard one of the greatest heroes the war for freedom has ever known. Uh, her story is spectacular. She is the lead figure uh, in 
both the book, the TV special. Um, and she's amazing. And we're looking forward to putting her on screen. So part of what we're doing then is we're committed to bringing in. And, and so that ties into we've never seen a black female lead for an epic film ever before. This story, it's a no brainer. It's got to be told because it's electrifying. And it features an amazing young 20 year old black female lead who changed the world. Uh, and to do that then and to cast the right person for this, when David Selznick was casting for um, Scarlett O'Hara back uh, in Gone with the Wind back in the late 1930s, even back then, the role of Scarlett O'Hara was the most eyed role in the entire entertainment industry. Every single A-list actress wanted to play Scarlett O'Hara. And there were media wars going out uh, saying, you have to cast this person, you have to cast Betty Davis, etc. These actresses who never read for roles by that time in their careers, they were just booked. They were reading multiple times and doing screen tests. But David Selznick brilliantly, and his, this is all captured in his memos, which survived, he said, no, no, we need not just an A-list artist, but we want the right, we want to make, as you said, Camille, we want to make an A-list artist. We want to make a celebrity. And he hires an obscure English actress, Vivian Lee, to play what had become an iconic American role. Um, and that's, and, and so look at how then in the industry, the industry has been historically really open to shining their, not, not telling people don't submit your audition, not telling people don't come to us if you don't have an agent, or if you're not an A-list artist, we don't want to hear from you. No, let's shine our searchlight out there in the landscape of talent and see who's amazing that's been overlooked. And if they're worthy of this part, let's bring them up to the stage, if you will. In fact, David um, Selznick also um, launched a casting call in, in some of the major cities in the South to find undiscovered talent. That's what we're committed to doing. Why? Because the playing field has been absolutely unlevel for women of color, for example, and people of color. There are amazing female and male artists of color working in theater companies in small towns and in big towns as well, who many are not even represented. And none of them are going up for these epic roles because they don't exist for us. And yet that's mm -hmm. where some of the most amazing talent is. So it's our privilege. It's our blessing to say, no, no, we want to find out who you are. If you're the right person for the role, young, amazing artist, older, amazing artist, young or older, amazing man, it's going to be our privilege to bring you on and cast you in the lead. So we've launched a global casting call, not only through the traditional industry um, routes. Uh, there are various services that provide that, but also right through TikTok, right through social media. We want to find out who you are. We want to see your audition. We will look carefully at your audition. Um, and that's, to me, the cornerstone of change. And it's the same in our future films with uh, literary talent. We're going to be drawing richly from the HBCUs for literary talent, screenwriters, technical talent, costumers, uh, production designers, editors, etc., and performing arts talent, uh, actors. I was privileged um, enough to, uh, I, I went to a screening of a, of a short film at, uh, so USC has a short film uh, screening series called First Look. And, and several years ago, and I'm, I'm always going to these short film screenings because I want to see who's out there. I want to see emerging talent and give you a leg up if I can. That's part of my passion and part of my life's purpose. So I went to uh, this one event at, at USC, First Look, and I saw an eight minute short film called Fig. The short film had no production value. They didn't have money to work with, but it was brilliantly produced and brilliantly directed. And so I cornered the director afterward in the lobby. We had a wonderful conversation. He gave me his card and I determined to give this young brother work. I actually have a screen, a cover, a, a, a copy of that card right there. His name was Ryan Coogler. And fortunately, uh, the Ryan Coogler Ryan from Black Panther, Ryan Coogler, Black Panther, Ryan Coogler. Uh, wow. And so that, that talent, Mr. Coogler, 
was sitting right there. There are other treasures and gems on our HBCU campuses. We want to mine that treasure that is you and give you opportunities here. And then as part of our business model, we're going to be sowing like a tithe, if you will, 10% of our net profits back into the HBCUs as endowments so that we can sustain then your continuing to develop these amazing these um, emerging and amazing talents. And in that way, we're creating an economy of drawing from your your campuses and pouring back into it. And in that way, we're throwing down the gauntlet for both Wall Street and Hollywood to follow. Uh, we think that ought to be the business model for our HBCUs because our HBCUs hold a very special role in the development of our people. USC and UCLA and NYU and the Ivy Leagues, they're there to educate their people. Great, and so are HBCUs. But the people that we're educating, we have a legacy and, and there's been a, a legacy of oppression. There have been mindsets of oppression that have seeped into who and what we are. Uh, and those need to be undone as well, in addition to academia. So we believe that it's the obligation of this nation, our business sectors in particular, to sow back then into these great institutions. So Steal Away uh, is our uh, flagship motion picture. We're launching it now. Uh, and we are now engaging investors. We're about to launch a major crowdfunding campaign for this with very, 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 very rich rewards. Uh, and we're looking to put this on screen. It's the new studio model. And this will be filmmaking of the people, by the people, and for the people. We're inviting the people in right from the earliest stages of development. Right now, we're scheduling more live stream meetings where we're inviting people in, answering actors' questions as they, questions as they audition for roles, uh, and really just bringing the people in this journey. We want this to be a collaborative experience with you. And we want to bring this to the screen with you having been very much part of this filmmaking process. Now, when you came up with this concept to do all of this, I'm sure you had some naysayers or maybe some people who were like, you can't do that. This is, you know, like, it's just not going to work and so on. So how do you defend that? How do you say, well, just like everything else, let me show you better than I can tell you type of thing. Like, how do you go about that? Absolutely. I mean, they told Thomas Edison that light bulb will never switch on, right? Um, so uh, absolutely, there are naysayers everywhere because people are used to um, doing things in a conventional way. People usually look to yesterday to base what they do today on, most do. Even when we talk to investors and whatnot, they want to go by old school methodologies. Um, so uh, the proof is in the pudding. And that is exactly why, even though we are not financed yet, our budget's $34.7 million dollars, this would cost a paramount $200 million to do the same film. So we're doing it at a fraction of studio cost. Uh, but the whole uh, thing here is that we are not waiting for the money to arrive. We know this is going to kindle with the people. We know it's going to excite the people. So the old school way of thinking is first raise the money, put everything on hold until you raise the money. And when you raise the money, then start getting serious about production. We're not doing that. We know we have something that will electrify the people. The response to the script, and by the way, the script is right there on the website to read at realmpictures.co or stealawaymovie.com. We're putting everything out there for the people. We literally have had hundreds of thousands of downloads. We're getting amazing feedback about lives being changed, just having read the script because of the deep character arcs and the issues our characters are going through. All this to say, rather than wait for the money to come in, we're, we've already launched our casting call. We've already put out the script and the call around the world for no, I get ca I get emails from 800 casting all the time. Now. Yes, but you know. And I'm like, oh, steal away. I know what this is now. Because <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, when I first saw the casting notice, I thought it was a slave film. And I was like, oh, not another slave film. But it's right, not. Right. It's definitely completely different. And being an HBCU grad myself, I was like 
drawn to it and just looked more into the story and so on because I hadn't heard of the Jubilee Singers before, especially of them traveling around and the idea that they wanted to um, eradicate the whole minstrels look of them all. Like they were changing that narrative too. And I just love the fact that you're changing narratives with a film that changed narratives about us as well and just showing that we're capable and we're on the same level education-wise as well as talent-wise, if not, you know, some cases more since some singers in the past used to steal from <laughs> or still do in that matter, even on TikTok. So um, with your process that you're doing, there's obviously some things that you have to keep maintain Hollywood just to protect your... Um, product is even just putting your um, script out there already. And just even, I mean, I just know a couple of weeks ago I had a lawyer on, so I'm just like, how, how did you navigate that side of things as well? Cause lawyers aren't cheap. Even if you, you are in the fundraising side of things, you still have to protect your product in that sense too. Absolutely. Yeah. My wife and I uh, sold our home to provide seed financing for this, including obtaining the legal counsel we need. This is a story that will not only change the game with respect to artists of color in a real substantive way, not move the needle, but destroy that needle. But at the same time, it will um, provide, it's a story of hope and race reconciliation and redemption. It's such a powerful story inherently. I, and and um, pardon this preface to your question, Camille, but this, this will directly answer your question about, about, for example, how we were able to afford um, the, uh, the attorneys. And you're right, the attorney fees can be quite formidable. Um, yeah. In 1861, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, if you Google um, the cornerstone speech, uh, he made a speech, Alexander Stevens, who's called the godfather of the Confederacy, in which he said, and I'm paraphrasing him, he said, our new nation, the Confederacy, is built upon and its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the black man, the Negro, is not the white man's equal, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal state. This, our nation, is the first in the history of the world based on this great philosophical and moral and physical principle. When that man, so that's the foundation of the whole Confederacy. Let no one tell you the Confederacy had nothing to do with race. That's, those are his own words. When the Jubilee Singers tracked that man down sometime later and they sang for him, steal away. According to Dark Midnight When I Rise, that man covered his face, tears fell, and he said, my God, I've never heard anything like that. And by the time that man left them, he vowed to spend the rest of his life defending their cause. So this is a story of race reconciliation. It's powerful about the, the ability of music to pierce hearts. And so, uh, and it will, you know, deals with depression and, and, and even intended, um, attempted and intended suicides. This is a time when suicide rates among young people are rising to all-time highs. And so this is a story that deals with that and points to triumph. All this to say, it's a powerful story. It's a meaningful story. So my wife and I just know this has to be put on screen. So we've sold our home and that covers some of our legal fees. And as far as navigating uh, uh, those issues, what, you know, you know, putting your screenplay out there for the public and what about copyright and the ability for people to rip this off? Conventional wisdom is don't put your work out there for people to see. Now, of course, you know, Steal Away is, is has been, every draft's been copyrighted, obviously, and, and registered with the writer's guild, but still, conventional wisdom is don't put it out there. And that's the way the industry works as well. We're turning that all upside down. We want to excite and to electrify and to entrance the people and garner the people as our partners in the making of this film, for the, to have them take this epic journey with us in the making of this film. So you know what we're saying? It's more important that we show you what this is. Read it for yourself. 
You say whether or not you resonate with this. And if you do, please jump on board and make this movie with us. And you know what? If at the end of the day, someone beats us to the uh, punch and actually makes a film based on the Jubilee Singers before this gets on screen, so be it. It's a risk, but it's a calculated risk. We own the rights to, there are two books that tell the story, Dark Midnight When I Rise and Tell Them We're Singing for Jesus by Tony Anderson as well. Uh, and the scripts have been copyrighted. But it's more valuable and important that we let the people into the C-suite. We let the people into the producer's room and make them partners in this. And for that, how can I ask you to believe in something? You know, if you're a part of the public, unless you can see what it is for yourself, you're not going to validate a restaurant until you've tasted what they've got. So that's more important. Um, we've crossed all of our legal uh, T's and dotted all of our I's, and we have to uh, trust that. And by the way, you touched on something very important, Camille. You're right. So many slavery films. There's a laziness in that. And this is something else that Steal Away and the films we make in the future are looking to shatter. You know, we as African-Americans have, and, and, and even before there was an America, we as blacks in history, because uh, there are many ancient films, that, stories that are put on screen as well. It's almost easy to go to slavery, you know, if, you, if you're a filmmaker. Oh, let's go there. There was a lot of drama there. But there are so many extraordinary stories, every bit as powerful as Schindler's List, as Braveheart, as Saving Private Ryan that feature protagonists of color, not just that one A-list artist will be the star and everyone else's, you know, whatever race, but I'm talking about protagonists of color. Think about The Lord of the Rings. There was no star of that as far as actors. It was, a, it was an ensemble of artists. They happen to be of one particular race or also the same with the Twilight series. The, the artists there were not very well known at that time. Our stories are there to be mined. They are rich. They're filled with drama. They're filled with emotion. They're filled with humor. They're filled with romance. And there's no reason that when you just throw a dart at a film that's been released, that's a, that's a high concept romance film, a high concept comedy, an adventure film, an epic, a saga, that one of those, that this story shouldn't have been headed by a black cast or this story shouldn't have been headed by a black cast. So Steal Away is saying, you're right. The opening, uh, like 10 minutes, take place in slavery. But after that, it rises to the greatest ballrooms of the world. And you see African-Americans in Victorian regal garb being chased down and bowed down to by the world. And it's all true. So that is key to what we're doing. We're exploding the our own self-made ghettos, the walls of our own ghetto that keep our stories confined. Shakespeare took the boring history of the past with, with Macbeth and made an amazing play that speaks to so many. Same with Richard III, Henry VIII. And we need to take these stories and mine them and just explode them and give them to the world. Teens in China, older people in Poland, uh, middle-aged people in Lagos, Nigeria should all be able to relate to our stories because we recognize that we are universal. We're part of this tapestry of humanity called, called um, being universal. And that's what we're attempting to do with Realm Pictures and are doing with Steal Away. I cannot wait to hear more about this project and to see it and maybe be involved in it. Who knows? Uh, but needless to say, I want to make sure everyone knows how they can um, become part of this project, how they can reach out to you or even get involved. Like what's the best way for them to do that? And is there a timeline for when you're hoping to start? Cause um, I, that was the other part of it. I like, saw different dates and so on. So just to clear it all up for anyone that's interested in getting involved, how quickly do they need to move? Right. Um, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Camille. You can uh, check us out at realmpictures.co and stealawaymovie.com. Uh, like us on our five social media channels because we communicate very actively and are going to begin even communicating more with our uh, our partners like yourself. Um, and 
our timeline is this. We're looking to be financed fully within three to five months. Our finance team are, engage, are engaging investors. We're about to launch a major crowdfunding campaign because we're not waiting on Wall Street. Uh, and we hope to be in pre-production uh, early summer, production by the fall. Uh, and this should be ready for a 2023 summer release. And we would love to, just so you know, um, this is not like any other production company or studio you've heard of. Uh, please get in touch with us through our websites or if you're an artist, uh, know that our casting call, we have 65 speaking roles, including some of the great grandest roles for African-Americans in cinema history. Please look to the website to audition for these roles. And um, we're soon gonna launch the call for our cinematographer, for our production designer, costume designer, editor. So just be in touch with us. Uh, and we will stay in touch with you and partner with you. Even next week, uh, we're hosting live stream meetings and those will be on an ongoing basis. So um, it's a privilege to be engaging. Uh, first of all, Camille, thank you for, for having me on the, uh, the show. Uh, so appreciate that. And it's a privilege just interacting with, uh, with the people, my people and our people and the people. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. When um, when I was pitched to interview you, when I saw Tupac, I was like, oh. <laughs> have to do it. And then it was just like, wait, and then it was Karis One, and then it was um, Gin and Juice. And I was like, okay, right. what is he's doing a film? Like, And then when I read more about it, I was like, wait, he's going through TikTok? Like, everything about it was just so different than every concept I've heard of before. Cause sometimes when people want to come on and they're trying to fund a film, it's like, oh, you know, what if it, like, you never know if it's legit. And so of course your resume speaks to your legitimacy. And then of course, like reading, well, my printer kind of ran out of paper today. So I was only able to print some of the script. Uh, and I was just like blown away with all of it. And the fact that it has a very strong black lead, like that's the whole concept that was written in there, that this would be the strongest black female lead. And, you know, when I, you were talking earlier about epic films with black women, I thought back to the color purple and just how, even in that film, it was a lot of doom and gloom. Like there wasn't like, you just felt like you were beat down the whole film in a way. And even, um, it, like I'm excited to see a film that is about our history, that enriches us all, that encourages all. And it's not like you're going to leave this, the theater angry and ready to fight, or, you know, you're going to leave it feeling jubilated to use the words <laughs> and like inspired that um, art does have a way. I mean, that was kind of the reason why I started podcasting was because I felt like there was so many different negative things out there and I wanted to bring more positive energy and I wanted to share why these different things affect regular people. Cause a lot of times in Hollywood and the music industry, they don't realize the damage they're doing by constantly using certain terms about black women and um, the way they depict us and so on, that we're the ones that are actually getting affected by it. We're the ones that are dealing with the negative sides of it. So just, I was like, up. Oh, where do I sign? How do I get help? How can I make this happen? And um, have been sharing already with friends, like, have you heard about this? Do you know about this? You should get involved. You're in Atlanta. Da, 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 da. So well, pleasure is definitely all mine. No, no, it's, 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 it's truly mine. Um, and, you know, you touched on something and just, just in closing, um, yeah. the, think about those movies. They're very few. Those movies that you actually don't want the likes to come up at the end. You're like cheering. You're almost standing on your seats. And again, how many of those movies have featured characters of color? How many of those movies? I'm talking about those that, that will remain eternally beloved. I this, think you mentioned it. Black Panther was the last one I can think yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Black <laughs> Panther. Yeah. Black Panther. Yeah. Exactly. And I was like, Wakanda forever was like, everybody was saying that. Yeah. Black, absolutely. white, Asian, all of them. Yeah. But this is that. I to take that to happen. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I will ask one thing. We we have one need right now. We need to get to 1,000 TikTok uh, followers. As soon as we do that, we can begin our live streams on TikTok. So we have an immediate uh, need that we're going forward to. Okay. Get- what's the username for that? So people know. Uh, if you know what my social media it's on the website, that's okay. I can put it in. If you go to the website, you click it. It's there. I should I should know the answer to that. No worries, no worries. It's hard to keep up with everything, oh so God. no worries at all. I'll have it. Um, I'll definitely have it like written on there as well. So, well, so this has been great. Thank you so much for being my guest today. And if there's anything else you want to share with us, anytime you have a new promotion or new information, please reach out because I definitely would love to have you back. Because I felt like there were so many more things we could talk about. Because even like I didn't get to bring up Lethal Weapon or or Scrooge, all the other stuff you got to do. So sure. definitely, you're. My camera is your camera. <laughs> well, little anecdotes uh, for like for for Snoop Dogg, and you want to know how shy he can be on camera. If you ever want, uh, just talk about those anecdotes. There are plenty of them to mine at a future time. Oh, I can't wait! So, thank you again for being my guest, and thanks for tuning into the eSpot with Camille. And make sure you subscribe to his TikTok and all of the other um, channels, the social media, and check out their website and also do that for me as well. And remember, I don't make us the best kept secret. This is the eSpot with Camille. And this was Filmmakers Friday with my guest, Stephen Ashley Blake. So check us out. Thank you so much for joining us.